I spent uh, this week on the road, and um, Thursday and Friday I was in uh, a court proceeding in Los Angeles, actually a little south of Los Angeles in Santa Ana, California. And I had a, a, a federal judge type fella that I was arguing in front of and examining witnesses in front of. And it was interesting to me that occasionally some of my Texas vocabulary came out. Um, I had an expert witness who was a top flight scientist from Duke that I had on the stand. And, and as I was going through his curriculum vitae, his resume, to show him to be qualified for what he's testifying about, I ultimately said to him, I said, so, you know, as you are here talking about this subject today, is it safe for us to assume this is not your first rodeo? <laughs> That's... And the judge just starts laughing. Now, these are not supposed to be comedy appearances. These are supposed to be serious hearings. And you're not... And I said, excuse me, Your Honor, and, and it reminded me when I had, uh, uh, I've tried a couple of cases up in, in the Northeast, and, and I have another word that I tend to use that's a good verb for us, the verb to fuss. But evidently they don't use that much in the Northeast, because I had a witness on the stand that was, uh, I was cross-examining. It was, uh, as I say, one of the bad guy's witnesses. And uh, so the bad guys had their witness on the stand, and I got to cross-examine him. And this fella would disagree with anything I said. He just, he knew I was on the other side, and he was not going to agree with anything. I could say, is the sky blue? And he would have argued with me. He and so I decided to show this to the jury by just bending over backwards to ask him questions. There's no way he and I disagree on just to watch him fuss with me. And he would. And so finally I said to him, I said, you know, sir, you know, would you agree with me, blah, blah, blah. And he starts arguing. I said, sir, I'm not trying to fuss with you. I just need to ask you some simple questions. Well, the judge, the jury, and all of the lawyers on the other side start chuckling and spend the rest of the day and half of the next day chuckling because I talked about fussing with the witness and I didn't want to fuss. Well, where I grow up, fussing is a good word. Mom would tell us as kids, stop fussing. I, don't y'all use fussing? Okay. They don't in New Jersey. Have you ever fussed with anybody? Let me be a little more specific. Have you ever had a fuss with anybody you went to church with? A sharp disagreement with someone? Have you ever had a sharp disagreement with someone who's your friend? Someone who's your close friend and co-worker that you go to church with? Who you've known for years and years? Who you've worked with for years and years? Such a sharp disagreement that it's, it really drives a wedge between you on what you perceive to be God's will. Well, Paul had such a fuss. <clears throat> and it's part of what we're going to cover today. 
I'd like to get into it by taking a moment just to kind of review where we've been with Paul. Because there are some elements about Paul's history that make today's lessons important. So we're going we're gonna to tie up some of these loose ends to make sure we're all on the same page as we get into the lesson. You all remember what we've covered thus far with Paul. We talked about how Paul was born. He's born a Roman citizen, a citizen of Tarsus, into a Greek civilization and a Greek world. Rome itself was Latin, I guess, but Paul's born into a Greek area of the world, not Greece itself, but an area of modern Turkey that had been uh, Greek since Alexander the Great had conquered it several centuries earlier. Paul's born a Roman citizen in a Greek world, but he's reared in Jerusalem at the feet of one of the top Jewish rabbis. That's where he goes to school. So you've got this man with this Greek education and and Greek foundations, yet deep Jewish foundations and a Jewish education as well. And Paul grows up in his Jewish faith very zealous for what he believes. Paul becomes the principal persecutor of the church. It is Paul who may not wish the church under his foot, but definitely tries to at least get him under his thumb. Paul is there holding the cloak when they stone Stephen. Paul is there getting the arrest records or arrest uh, warrants to go arrest the members of the church. Paul is a chief prosecutor and persecutor of the church on his way to Damascus to do the church damage there when he has an encounter with Jesus, an encounter that changes his life as God reaches down from the sky and touches his heart. And Paul realizes, he realizes that Jesus really is the Son of God. And that the very movement he's been persecuting is the movement he was made for. And so Paul becomes a different person. He's born again. He's a Christian. He's a believer. And the church he was bent on destroying, he comes now to to seek to minister. The church... They don't trust him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. They're not letting him in the door. They're not willing to fellowship. Certainly not willing to let the killer minister to them. That's what we have until one person comes up and intervenes. One person comes up and puts their arm around Paul. It's Barnabas. And says, I believe you. I trust you. Come on. I'll get you in the door. I'll be your buddy. And Barnabas comes to the rescue of Paul. Not once, but over and over again. After Paul's received into fellowship, albeit maybe a distant fellowship, Paul winds up just leaving and going to Syria, Cilicia, and 
and doing his own thing for years. And that doesn't change. Paul's not brought in out of the wilderness back into the fold in the Christian fellowship of ministry until Barnabas goes and finds Paul in Paul's hometown of Tarsus and says, you know, we could really use your help. Come on to Antioch and teach. Teach with us. Come help us. And Barnabas, again, brings Paul back into the fellowship and back into the fold and back into the ministry. That first mission trip is one where God sets out Barnabas and Paul to do it. And it's Barnabas who says, let's start out at my home. Let's go to Cyprus. Come on. And brings Paul along. And as Paul rises in the visible part of the mission work, Barnabas is content to take a secondary role. No problem. That first mission trip is the one where they take with them John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark goes for the first leg, then he bails out. He says, I got to go. And he goes home to Jerusalem. Paul didn't like that. But Paul and Barnabas finish the mission trip. It's very successful. Oh, there's persecution. Paul gets stoned and left for dead. Barnabas pulls him out. They go back to Antioch. There's the big fuss over, do you have to become a Jew if you're a Gentile and you want to be a Christian? During that fuss, Barnabas, in one event, is kind of hypocritical. Paul confronts him. Speaks the truth in love, as Lewis would say. Barnabas has no trouble turning around and changing. These two men are close. Their bond is close. They go together to Jerusalem for the conference. The elders see them as a unit as the elders and apostles send them back to Antioch with a letter that says, here's what you need to tell the churches, the churches need to do to hold fellowship because this big Jew-Gentile dispute is going on. Jews can be Jews and find Jesus. If they accept Jesus, they're Christians. Gentiles can be Gentiles and find Jesus and do not have to become Jews. The end result is finding Jesus, not becoming Jewish. The goal is to be a Jesus follower, not a good Jew. And the church issues this letter and sends not only Paul and Barnabas, but sends several others, including a fellow named Silas, back to Antioch with this letter to explain it. So this point is where we've come so far in this class. Paul's written his letter to the Galatian churches that they'd evangelized. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. You with me? Let's pick up the flow of the narrative here. They're in Antioch teaching, and all of a sudden, Paul has an idea. Goes off in his head. He says, hmm, why don't we go back to each of the churches we started and check on them and see how they're doing? Pretty good idea. You know, these churches, they were having trouble. Paul wrote the Galatian letter. Wouldn't you like to know if they read it? Wouldn't you like to know if they followed it? 
Wouldn't you like to know if it's working? Wouldn't you like to know if maybe they need a little bit more? And Luke also makes it clear they're not leaving the Antioch church high and dry. Antioch's got a lot of other guys there teaching. And you can just sort of see Paul saying, man, are all these other people teaching? You remember our churches, wonder how they're doing. Why don't you and me, Barnabas, let's go back to those churches we started. Check on them. Barnabas says, that's a great idea. Hey, let's get my cousin to go again, John Mark. I think this would be good for him. Paul says, uh-uh. says, we can go to those churches we went to, but John Mark doesn't go. <clears throat> Barnabas says, oh, come on, let him go. Can you tell which one's Barnabas? <laughs> Barnabas says, let him go. Paul says, no, he abandoned us. He left us high and dry. I'm not taking that kid with us. And the Greek says there was a sharp disagreement. That's the way the English Standard Version translates it. I use the word fuss. Fuss in the Greek is parazuzmos. It's a big fuss, too. This is not like, I mean, the fuss borders on a hissy fit. That's like fuss up a notch, okay? They have a sharp disagreement, a parazuzmos. I looked for a couple of passages to give you a feel for what a parazuzmos was. Because most of us don't use parazuzmos in our vocabulary anymore. But Paul's favorite version of the Old Testament, at least to use, was the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament, the Hebrew written Old Testament translated into Greek. Greek. So we can go to the Old Testament Paul used and see some passages where parazuzmos is used. I pulled two of them out to kind of give you a flavor for what Luke tells us was existing between Paul and Barnabas. How about this one in Deuteronomy? The Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. Anger, fury, and great wrath. Parazuzmos. Paul and Barnabas... Parazuzmos. How about this one out of Jeremiah? I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. Great indignation. Parazuzmos. Okay. In other words, Paul and Barnabas had... A sharp disagreement, as the English Standard Version says, are they were really having a knockdown drag out over the issue. Knockdown drag out. All right, that's been a good expression. Now, I want to say something that's pretty meaningful to me. I want you to file this away. It may not mean anything to you, but if it does, just stick it in a bank. The Bible 
is unlike most any other book that, that has ever claimed to be holy. In that the Bible, which I believe is holy, is very real. It doesn't sugarcoat a lot of things. It is clear from reading Acts that Luke held Paul in the highest regard. Paul is a center point for half of the book of Acts. But even there, Luke doesn't sugarcoat Paul and paint him to be some dandy guy that he wasn't. He's very realistic about it. I mean, he's got no problem saying you know, that one of the things I love about some of our ministers on staff is they have no problem being real and saying, this is a shortcoming of mine. And this is an area where I need work. Or here's something I did that was not great for me to do. It's very real. Paul was very real. And Luke writes him as a real person. You see what I mean? It would have been real easy to gloss it over, to use a word other than parazuzmos. Instead of a knockdown drag out, Dorothy, could have said they had a discussion and agreed to disagree. You know, some of those antiseptic terms. Now, they did happen upon a solution. They decided that they would just split. <laughs> oh. <laughs> different kind of split. I was very hungry when I did it this morning. Excuse me. They decided they would split. To quote Bob Dylan, you go your way and I'll go mine. Um, if we look at those churches, <laughs> I think it was Blonde on Blonde. I'm not sure which album, but it was a long time ago. You children go buy it off iTunes. You go your way and I'll go mine and you'll grow up. Um, Barnabas and John Mark decide they'll go back to the island of Cyprus. They're home. They'll go visit those churches. Paul, he's going to grab Silas, the buddy from Jerusalem, and go visit the churches in, on the mainland, the Galatian churches. And that's the decision that's made. Now, Silas, if you've got your King James Version, you'll find Paul referring to Silas in the Thessalonian correspondence, for example, as Silvanus, which was the Latin name. But Silvanus, Silas, same guy. So Paul takes Silas and says, go with me. And what's interesting to note is from this point on, we read nothing more about Barnabas in the New Testament, with one exception. We read, chronologically, Barnabas is never mentioned again. There's a, 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 a writing called the Acts of Barnabas that supposedly was originally penned by Mark himself. But the copies we have date to around the 400s, so we don't know how, who really wrote them or anything much about them. Those Acts of Barnabas say that Barnabas stayed on, Cre on Cyprus, excuse me, where he went on this mission trip and stayed there till he died. That's where he lived out the rest of his days. But we don't know. We don't have anything in Scripture to tell us. Now, having said that, there's a bit of an unsettledness that might be in your stomach or in your spirit over the idea of these two guys who were so close, who did so much together and went through so much together, having a parazuzmos and splitting and going their separate ways. 
that doesn't seem like a great way to end the story. That's like ending, it's like ending the Rocky series after Rocky Four and not having that Rocky Five to just kind of tie it all together. <laughs> and the neat thing about it is there's a passage in Scripture that if you and I were just reading Scripture, we might say, why did God put that in there? That's got no use for us today. That's, that's, uh, why, why is that in eternal scripture? It's this little passage that Paul writes about three or four years later. When Paul's writing the Corinthian church, and in 1 Corinthians 1, or no, second, it's chapter 9, I believe, verse 1. Paul says... Why do just I and Barnabas have to work for a living? Now, Paul adds Barnabas in such a way, when you're reading it in the Greek, that you can tell Paul's talking about him as his buddy that he loves. He's using him to hold up an example of someone who's a really good servant of the Lord. Paul did not... If you read your Bruce book, which we've bought, this is one area where I disagree with you. You're welcome to get a Bruce book if you don't have one. Bruce acts like the two never could make up and they split and it's just such a sad thing. And I disagree. I think the passage in Corinthians tells us where Paul's heart was. They didn't split for good. This didn't split the blanket in a way that it couldn't be mended. They had a parazuzmos. They did have a knockdown drag out. But they resolved it in love, respect, appreciation such that Barnabas comes to Paul's mind later when he's writing a letter and wants to use a good example. And Paul's writing it to the Corinthians who probably never met Barnabas, but had only heard of him through Paul, as Paul would have related to him what they'd done in their lives. So Paul clearly talked about him in a positive manner. Um, now, having said that, Paul goes with Silas. Who's Silas? Silas, a great guy, a really good fit for this. Let me tell you about Silas. Silas is a good fit for a number of reasons. First of all, Silas is one of the voices of the Jerusalem church. When the elders and the apostles wrote the letter and they sent it with Paul and Barnabas and said, go deliver this letter and take our message and tell the people you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Remember that? Silas is one of the people that the apostles sent. They said, you go out there and be one of our voices. You go out there and you tell the people. Okay? So we've got Silas as a voice for the Jerusalem church. That means when Paul's out there preaching, Silas is able to say, um, you know, the Jerusalem elders and apostles sent me to confirm the truth of this letter. Because as Paul goes to visit the Galatian churches, he doesn't just do so with a copy of the letter he sent him saying, remember this? Paul actually takes the, the correspondence from Jerusalem with him. It says, look, I wrote you, but since I wrote you, the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, they've said basically the same thing. And Silas is there to confirm it. He's also there to explain the decree, if you will, from Acts 15 in the Jerusalem conference. Not only that, he's a real good co-worker, and it looks like he's a pretty good writer. Because if you look at Thessalonians, for example, most likely... Silas, Silvanus, is the one who's writing it down. Dale Hearn's favorite word, amanuensis. Silas is the secretary who's writing Paul's letters, taking them down. 
So he's, a, he's well-educated. He's smart. He's a good Jerusalem voice. He's a good co-worker. Paul will use him as an example. And not only that, we find out he's a Roman citizen like Paul, which is going to be very, very helpful on this journey because there's a lot of persecution and a lot of problems, and some of them can be minimized if you're a Roman citizen on the road. It's much easier to be on the road as a Roman citizen. So with that, the two go off. And they go back to visit these churches that Paul had established. They didn't take the sea route. They went through Tarsus. Went up through Tarsus and went up and, and kind of went backwards. And they went to Derby, and then they went to Lystra. And in Lystra, they got to meet or, or visit with a, a, another fellow who joined the troop, a young kid. Now, different scholars differ on how to read this. There is some good indication that this young kid had been converted when Paul first went through Lystra, and Paul was responsible for his conversion. The kid had a Greek dad who it looks like was dead at this point, had a Jewish mother, had a Jewish grandmother, and was a Christian. And this young lad, Paul took under his wings. There are some scholars who suggest that the usage of a word by Paul on Timothy puts Timothy somewhere around 18, 20 years old. I'm not sure. Scholars aren't positive. But there's an indication he's somewhere in that age range. So here we've got Paul and this young boy named Timothy. And Paul decides to bring Timothy with him on the journey. When Paul makes that decision, Timothy, who'd had a Greek father, his father had never allowed him to be circumcised. Paul circumcises Timothy before they go. Now, you might ask, why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? This is Paul who's written the Galatian letter to that church saying, if you're a Greek and you become a Christian, you don't have to submit to the law of Moses. You don't have to submit to Jewish ritual. Don't be circumcised. If you're going to be circumcised, I'd rather you just be completely emasculated, he says. In Galatians, that's, that's what he says. And yet Paul turns around and from a Galatian church, takes this kid with a Greek daddy and has him circumcised before he takes him out on the mission field. Why would Paul have him circumcised? Let me make the suggestion that, uh, um, all right, we need, to, we need to remember this about Hebrew culture. In Hebrew circles, yeah, um, in Hebrew circles, your Jewishness comes from your mother, not your father. Okay? In other words, if you want to know if you're a Jew, you, chase, you, 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 you trace Jewishness maternally, not paternally. The reasoning, uh, well, there's some Old Testament passages that are used to, to explain it, but there's a lot involved in this. First of all, by tracing it maternally, you always know if your parent was Jewish. You always know who your mother is. Pre-genetic testing, there's no absolute certainty on who your dad is. Right? You want to know if Jesus is descended from Abraham? You know it. If Mary is, if you follow the lineage maternally, you're always confident. 
If your lineage is followed paternally, eh, maybe somewhere back there something that shouldn't have happened happened. And so it's a maternal link. Now, Timothy's daddy was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. Her mother was Jewish. So in the Jewish mind, what is Timothy? He's Jewish. So it's one thing to try and take a Greek and say when you become a Christian, you should not turn yourself into a Jew. It's another thing altogether if you're Jewish. And Paul sees Timothy Jewish, knows that the other Jews will see him that way. And Paul's not taking Timothy on the road for anything less than saving souls. Paul himself said, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. I tried to find birds of a feather flocked together, but instead I went um, with dogs. Timothy can't go in that surrounding areas. They knew who he was. How's he supposed to testify that Jesus is the answer to the Jewish system when he himself repudiated his Judaism? Wouldn't work. So with that answer, Paul and Timothy and Silas, they go about to all of these different churches and they go about taking the Jerusalem letter and trying to build these churches up. As they go, they start to deviate their path and go off into Asia. But the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go to Asia. Then they try and deviate and they try and go off to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go into Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit actually kind of funnels them away from Bithynia and away from Asia and funnels them past, woo, all the way over to Troas. So that that's where they have to go. It's either that or turn around and go home. They knew they weren't supposed to go home. So they're in Troas. And while they're in Troas, Paul one night has a vision. In the vision, there's a man from Macedonia. Nobody knows how they knew he was from Macedonia. Lots of theories. But a man from Macedonia says to Paul, please come to Macedonia and teach us about Christ. And Paul says, okay. And something really nice happens here. We'll see that Paul will go from Troas, where he is, has the vision. He's going to sail to a little island in one day. The next day he'll sail on up to the harbor. Neapolis is the harbor town for Philippi. And then he'll go to Philippi in Macedonia. What's our letter that goes to the church at Philippi? Philippians. Okay. So Paul is headed up to Philippi. But Paul and Silas and Timothy are not going alone. Because as Paul had been directed to Troas, guess who he meets in Troas? Luke. The good doctor. The one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The one who's writing about Paul's adventure. Paul picks up a doctor on the way, which actually is kind of nice because Paul's not in great health. And we read Timothy never was all that great in health either. And Paul, this is the way the passages read. It's always been they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. And all of a sudden, the they went down to Troas becomes immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. 
and we have wheeze for a while. And it's real interesting, before this, if you read the narrative, it's, ah, for a few days they were there, and then they, they went from there to here, kind of walking down. It's very general. But once Luke joins the journey, the writing's very specific. He says, in one day, we sailed from Troas to an island called Samothrace. We stayed the night in Samothrace, got up the next day, and we sailed into the harbor at Neapolis. And from there we walked, it's about a 10-mile walk, to Philippi. And he lays it out with great precision. And all of the narrative that's got the wheeze in it, or Luke's around, Luke starts documenting everything with this fantastic precision. Every harbor, every port, every step of the adventure. Because he was there. He could be more precise. So they pick up. When they're there in Philippi, Paul goes to a place outside the city gates where there's a meeting of prayer. There's not a synagogue there, which tells you, most scholars say, because you have to have ten Jewish men, a quorum of ten for a synagogue. So there aren't ten Jewish men in Philippi. It's not a big Jewish population. But they go there, and outside the gates, there are some women meeting for prayer on the Sabbath day. Paul speaks to them and preaches for them. And uh, one woman in particular we're told about, Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And Lydia invites Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and says, come to my house and tell my household about it, which would include her her servants and, and other folks there. By all indications, Lydia was either a widow or a single woman. But Lydia brings Paul and crew to her house The gospel is preached to all of them. They all put their faith in Jesus Christ and are baptized. Now, Paul continues to walk around the town, and he has a little problem with a Pythonus. Pythonus. What is a Pythonus? It's not going to be in your Bible as a Pythonus unless you have Greek. Your Bible will say a woman with a spirit of divination. It was the Python spirit she had. Pythos in the Greek. Pythos, the python, came from the idea, supposedly in Greek mythology, Apollo comes down to the oracle at Delphi, which isn't an oracle yet. It's just at Delphi. The goddess of Gaia for the earth is there, and her kingdom is guarded by this huge python that's her son. And Apollo kills the python. And from that point on, Apollos has the python as kind of his trophy image of who he is. And the oracles at Delphi are dedicated to Apollos and the spirit of the python. And so to, to, to be a diviner or someone who communicates with the gods and the spirits and takes the messages and puts them out into the world uh, to be an oracle or, or, or have a spirit of divination is to have the python spirit in the Greek. So this woman has the python spirit and she's following Paul around and she's mocking him as she walks around. Uh, As we read it in Acts, the mockery is one of, um, uh, let's get it exactly right. She follows Paul and us. This is the we part of the narrative. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation though clearly doing it in a mocking type way because after a few days of it, Paul gets fed up, turns around and says, get out of her spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. And she leaves. And Luke writes it with a pun. 
He says, when the spirit leaves her, the money her owners were making, it left too. And they get really ticked off. Now, there is a key verse here that if you're making notes in your Bible and you like Greek stuff, make a note on this one. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was lost, they seized Paul and Silas. The word for hope in the Greek is elpis. It's not hard. It's, if you keep these things, E-L-P-I-S, elpis. That's the Greek word for hope. And when we read about hope in our New Testament, this is what we need to remember the word means. It doesn't mean, oh, gee, 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 I hope, I hope, I hope, maybe, maybe, maybe. Like, I hope I win the lottery. There's not much chance, but I hope. No. This is a verse that shows you the Greek word hope means a confident expectation. These guys had been making money on her for years. They never dreamed this new nutball that was in town was going to turn around and dash their confident expectation of making bucks off of her. Hope doesn't mean in the Greek, el peace doesn't mean, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. It means I confidently expect it. We just don't have a good word to translate it, so our translators use hope. It's something that, that hadn't happened yet, but it's something that we confidently expect. We can go to the bank on it. We can rely on it. So when you read that, that we have a hope in God, it doesn't mean, ooh, it means a confident expectation. Christ in us, the hope of glory, or that we should know the hope to which we are called. All of the hope passages are talking about something we confidently expect. Okay, I've got to tell you something else. Paul and Silas get arrested. They get put in jail. Jail's not a cool thing back then. It doesn't have windows. Okay? It doesn't have air conditioning. Our jails are the Hilton compared to the jails then. Bugs, rats, roaches, no food, and they're shackled. Their legs are shackled. That doesn't mean they're just chained together. They're in stocks so that they're spread apart so they can't get comfortable and they hurt. It was a torture instrument. And what do Paul and Silas do? They just start singing and praising God. Well into midnight, and an earthquake happens. And the cells are open, the door is open, and Paul and Silas can walk right out, and the stocks are broken. They can leave. The jailer wakes up, comes running in, realizes what's happened, that the earthquakes open the doors, and he pulls out his sword to kill himself because he's going to get killed. His life is forfeit under Caesarean Julian law if as the jailer his, his uh, prisoners escape. Before he does it, Paul calls out and says, No, 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 don't kill yourself. We're all here. We haven't left anywhere. Jailer pulls him out and says, what? He says, no, 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 we're, we're just worshiping the Lord. We're still here. Jailer says, what do I need to do to be like you? Whatever you've got, I want. My life's a wreck. Paul says, oh, that's easy. Put your faith in Christ. And the story is wonderful. The story is, is an M.C. Escher drawing. You familiar with Escher? It's a contrast. 
Paul is in bondage, but the real bondage is this jailer. He's enslaved by his life and his sin. Paul's free, and then Paul frees the jailer. Even though Paul's still in the jailer's custody, Paul frees the jailer. And do you know what happens afterwards? The jailer says to Paul and, and to Silas, come here, let me wash your wounds. Because before he got it, they put him in prison, they beat the fire out of him with these rods. So they got big open gaping wounds and I'm sure the bugs were getting in because they couldn't brush them off because they were in chains while they were worshiping the Lord. The jailer says, let me wash your wounds. And Paul says, that's great, let me baptize you. Then the jailer says, let me give you some food. And Paul says, that's great, now let me feed your spirit. And it's that M.C. Escher drawing where they're doing it for each other. Don't you know the next morning was just bizarre? Luke and others are getting up. Oh, we need to go to the jail. We've got to take Paul some food. Hope he's made it through the night. What are we going to do? And they find Paul sitting around the breakfast table with the jailer talking about the Lord. The magistrates come, they say, okay, we can release Paul. They say, okay, Paul, uh, uh, the jailer says, isn't this great? God be praised, you get released. Paul says, tell the magistrates we're not going anywhere. He says, what? Tell them we're Roman citizens and what they did to us was illegal. You're not allowed to beat and imprison us without a trial. The magistrates say, you're Roman citizens? And they come to Paul. Um, what do we need to do to make this right? Paul says, apologize, and don't you treat the church this way when we leave. And then we'll leave, but not until we go back to Lydia's house and encourage the church. Don't you know Paul's letter to this Philippian church had meaning a few years later when he said, I thank my God in my every remembrance of you. Don't you know the jailer loved hearing that? Don't you know the jailer loved hearing Paul write, I thank my God every time I think of you. Offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. In view of your participation in the gospel. Don't you know the Philippians understood when Paul said rejoice in the Lord always. Again I'll say rejoice. Let your patience be known to all men for God is near. Be worried in nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So our points for home, serve, love, do your best, even when you're fussing. <laughs> In all your ways, acknowledge the Lord, and he'll make your, straight, your paths straight ones. By the same token, have some mercy on the young. I've goofed up so many times, and I probably will continue to, because I'm young at heart. Um, young people aren't mature as old people are supposed to be cut them some slack paul learns to do that with mark we'll see how they made up later or that they made up next paul wasn't allowed to go into asia god said you can't go into asia but god sent there there are missionaries in asia would you pray for as they do god's mission work there and final point for home i don't know where you are in your life but darkness and change are no match for god there was an old song called Praise the Lord. And I, I want to give you this lyric 
that go with this passage that God turns mourning into gladness, then we'll pray and we'll be done. But it says, Satan is a liar and he wants to make us think that we're paupers. When he knows himself, we're children of the king. So lift up the mighty shield of faith. The battle must be won. Jesus Christ is risen. So the work's already done. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord. For our God inhabits praise. It's out of the Psalms. Praise the Lord. For the chains that seem to bind us serve only to remind us that they fall powerless behind us when we praise him. So whatever you're going through in your life, whatever dungeon or prison where you are, praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our God, we do lift up for you the folks you have in the mission field. We pray that you will open doors for them. We pray that you will give them wisdom, that you will direct them to the people Uh, They need to be talking to, that you'll give them opportunity to lift up your name in praise, that you will uphold them and strengthen them. And I pray for everyone in this room and everyone who hears this lesson through the, the internet or radio, that you will bless them with a vision of your grandeur, that you will bless them with an understanding of your compassion, and that you will touch their lives break the chains, release the prison doors, and call them forth into the abundant and glorious life that you have for them. Through our Lord Jesus we pray, amen.